1: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd guess the fact that your body consists of three dimensions, height, width, and depth, isn't something that preoccupies your brain very much, although after that second slice of cake, the concept of width might. No, I'd wager that you're more concerned with that enigmatic fourth dimension, time, such as how to use it well, or why you never have enough of it, or after noticing yet another gray hair or an even wider girth, a persistent wistfulness that you could turn back the clock. Well, maybe you can. I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, a couple of overarching biggies, time and its accumulated effects, aging. Now we don't have a precise understanding of how either work, and yet the idea that time and age move in one inevitable direction is being challenged by scientists. Find out why neurologists think your brain is a time machine and how biologists propose to reset the biological clock. Plus, why your brain age is more important than the number of birthdays in determining your lifespan. Set your watch. It's time on your side.
2: Okay, before we try to control time's most noticeable and disturbing handmaiden, aging, we should have a grasp on what time itself is. Well, believe it or not, there is no agreed-upon definition for time, as there is for some things.
1: Uh, We all agree that the six-sided cardboard structure on the table is a box. All agreed? Yeah!
0: And inside this box, we all agree, is a quadrupedal mammal of the feline variety? Yeah! And this cat is alive? Yeah! No. Nine. Okay, Dr. Schrodinger, let's take it from the top.
2: Well, most things have an agreed-upon definition. However, the definition of time stirs debate. Is our fourth dimension a construct of the universe or of our consciousness? Einstein defined time through its intimate relationship to three-dimensional space. Manipulates space and time would bend in response.
1: But perhaps time doesn't exist outside the human mind. Time could be a product of the unique architecture of the Homo sapiens brain. After all, humans are the only animal that can imagine moving backwards and forwards through it.
0: Two months ago, my psychic predicted that in four months I would strike it rich in Las Vegas. So two days ago, I sold my motorbike, which in hindsight was a bad idea, because tomorrow my astrologer is casting my horoscope. How am I ever
3: going to know my future?
1: In contrast to humans, other animals, mole rats, for example, exist only in the here and now.
3: I am
0: digging. I am now digging. Can't see a darn thing. Got soil in my mouth. (laughs) But I am still burrowing and digging. I am now
2: digging. The fact that humans are so keenly aware of time, past, present, and future, may occasionally cause angst, but it may also contribute to our evolutionary success. While Einstein's blueprint for time travel might include sending you in a spacecraft at nearly the speed of light, UCLA neuroscientist Dean Buonomano suggests using your noggin. His book, Your Brain is a Time Machine.
0: All animals tell time. So even even bacteria and plants, in a sense, can have a circadian clock. They know the time of day. Animals, um, mammals and invertebrates, also tell time on the time scale of seconds um, and minutes. But telling time is very different from understanding the concept of time, right? So while all animals have the ability to tell time, humans are probably fairly unique in our ability to grasp the concept of time and understand the fundamental difference between the past, present, and future which is one thing that enables us to engage in what we call mental time travel. And if you think about the signature abilities of, of our species to build a tool or to plant a seed and come back and reap the benefits of that um, for food, a year later, these are things that require you to implicitly understand the concept of time, right? These are future-oriented activities. So it's that cognitive ability that, that I think is uniquely human.
1: So what you're saying is that our ability to understand time has an evolutionary advantage. But don't animals, other animals, do something similar? I mean, squirrels hide nuts and they come back for them and doesn't that require an understanding of the future?
0: Yeah, good good question. So squirrels store nuts birds build nests for the future right dogs bury bones and a lot of other animals store food for the future the difference there is most of those behaviors seem to be evolutionarily hardwired the squirrel is probably not thinking "Mm, it's winter's coming up I'm going to store these, these nuts um, in order that uh, for me not to starve in the future. So what's uniquely ability of humans is our ability to flexibly foresee and plan for the future and connect the dots. So evolutionarily, we have no reason to plant a seed. Obviously agriculture was a cultural invention. It's not hardwired into our genes. Now, let me just add there that this there is an ongoing debate about whether some animals can engage in mental time travel, and two parties are, are still arguing about this issue.
1: Now, you said that this idea of mental time travel is something that's unique to humans, but not all humans do it. And in fact, you cite as an example an Indian group called the Pitaha. I hope I have that right. But they live entirely in the present. Could you give an example? And where do they live? Physically, where do they live other than in the present? (laughs) Right, right.
0: Um, So the Pidaha, this is a group of Indians um, studied by anthropologists, and I'm referring mostly to work by Daniel Everett. And and it's an exaggeration to say that they don't engage in mental time travel, so I I wouldn't go that far. But he argues that their existence is primarily present-based. And and the examples of that, for example, are they, they like using his tools but they would never store their tools or they don't seem to think about I'm going to place my tools here and because I'm going to want them again in the future they don't store food for the future for any long periods of time so they seem to really do focus primarily on uh, the present now there as with all these anthropological studies there's certainly controversy on these but I think it's fair to say that um, they engage in mental time travel to a much lesser degree than most of us in the Western world.
1: Now does that mean that they would not have an idea how old they are? Do they not keep track of age?
0: So indeed that's the case. They don't seem to keep track of their age, but you know, they also don't have a counting system, Molly. (laughs) So these things are all tied together, right? So if you don't have a way to count or to keep track of a numerical system, which is another uniquely human ability, it's hard to do that anyways.
1: Well. I want to ask a question that may be a chicken and egg question, which has to do with the architecture of the brain and the evolutionary advantage of mental time travel. So as humans evolved, did we find that the more that we were able to cast our minds and think abstractly about the future, but maybe even the past, the more that those areas of the brain were wired that way or those neurons developed that way, Or did that development have to come first, and then we were able to do this kind of mental time travel?
0: I I think you hit the the nail on the head at the beginning there. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. And and the answer is we don't fully understand, of course. But clearly, humans have this ability to conceptualize time. So what is it in our brain that allows us to do that? One theory is that most mammals can sort of have a reasonable conceptualization or understanding or mapping of space if you will so if you have a dog your dog certainly understands that if a treat falls behind the couch it doesn't have to go through the couch it can go around the couch or above the couch and animals migrate over long distances they can navigate in the dark so they have a mapping of space in their heads and one theory is that humans came to grasp the ability of time by sort of spatializing it, by sort of co-opting the circuits in our brains that were in place to understand space and utilizing those for um, time. So in the same sense, we might map something to the left of us and the right of us. Now we have mapped something to the past and the future. And some people argue that one piece of evidence in this direction is the fact that when we talk about time, we use spatial metaphors, right? So we will say, oh, it was a very long day. I'm looking forward to meeting you. In hindsight, that was a bad idea. So these are spatial ways in which we talk about time.
1: So the question is, is time a construct of the universe? I mean, is it actually intrinsic to the structure of the universe, or is it something that humans invented?
0: Right. So there's a couple of views here. So we can view time as a full-blown dimension in which the past, present, and future are sort of equally real, or just the present is real. Not that there's any absolute simultaneous present, but just the present um, moment is the only thing that's real. The past once existed, the future will come into existence. Or what you're getting to is time really just an abstraction that allows scientists to better understand the universe, but ultimately time doesn't play is not a physical property of the universe like energy or mass. And here I think is is the, the physicist Ernst Mach put it this way, it, it's utterly impossible to measure change using time because time is an abstraction we arrive at by measuring change. So here the notion is, is that, well, time is not a general fundamental property of the universe, but it's a very convenient abstraction that we use to make sense of, of what's happening in the universe.
1: Now, you present the argument, um, but are you willing to come down on one side or the other? You're a neurobiologist. Do you think that time is a product of consciousness, or do you think that it's a fundamental construct of the universe?
0: I, you know, nobody knows the answer to these questions. And and I do favor the sort of more neuroscience-biased view there, which is that time really does flow so that the passage of time the flow of time is a property of the universe so my view here is much of what we experience about the world is in a sense an illusion so what i mean by that is think about something like color so color doesn't really exist in the physical world does it so what exists is um, wavelengths of uh, electromagnetic radiation the brain gives us the subjective sense of color as an interpretation, if you will, of wavelength. The point is, is that while the brain created that, it's strongly correlated with something that's physical. So my view is that, evolutionarily speaking, if we have this subjective sense of the flow of time, it's probably correlated with something physical or some fundamental property of the real universe. Otherwise, I think it's hard to justify why that would evolve from an evolutionary perspective.
1: So that would put you in the presentism camp.
0: It would. It would.
1: In your book, you outline these two camps. There may be more. Who knows? Um, yes,
0: there are. There are. But that I'm simplifying a bit.
1: <laughs> which we appreciate. At least I appreciate, I'll say. But you have presentism, which is the idea that if we live in presentism then the present is real and the past and the future are things that we think about, but they don't necessarily exist in the same moment. And therefore, we, can, we have the, the sense that time is flowing. But eternalism, which is the other camp, I'll put it that way, is the idea that the past, the present, and the future all exist at the same time. And I have to say, that is very hard to grasp.
0: Yeah, and, and language here doesn't help because you say all exist at the same time. You're using time here, so so the language gets very, very fuzzy. But sometimes the way we frame this is the past, present, and future are equally real, or they coexist.
1: And, and isn't evidence, though, for presentism the fact that our bodies change over time, although I guess I can't use the word time, but that our bodies are changing, we are aging, So isn't that evidence that time is passing? No, not
0: really, because in the block universe, it's not so much that there's not different points in time.
1: And I should say the block universe the block universe is another
0: word for uh, eternalism. For
1: eternalism, okay.
0: Yes. So the block universe is sort of the physical term for what philosophers call internalism. And under the block universe, the idea is, is yes, there's moments in time or slices of time, in which there's the young Molly, the medium-age Molly, and the older Molly. So there's still aging is still not an issue. The the clash between neuroscience and eternalism comes from subjective experience of the flow of time this very salient and universal feeling that all human beings have that time is flowing that things are changing that the past is disappearing into the void as the future emerges from every present moment so that flow of time clashes with the, the view of eternalism. But the fact that there's young and old uh, Mollies, no, that doesn't necessarily clash with eternalism.
1: Dean Buonomano is a neurobiologist and psychologist at UCLA, and he is the author of Your Brain is a Time Machine. Dean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. <laughs>
0: it's a pleasure to share my time with you, Molly. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Okay, your brain may be a time machine, but is it also a kind of countdown device? Find out why your brain age, and not your chronological age, may provide the best estimate of your lifespan. Next.
2: It's time on your side on Big Picture Science.
3: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's your age? Some people choose to go by how they feel, but that doesn't wash with others. The Department of Motor Vehicles, for example, it's a stickler for wanting the precise number of times you have orbited the sun since your appearance on Earth. That as old as you feel age just isn't good enough for your driver's license.
1: But scientists in the U.K. say they have a metric other than birthdays for assessing your true age, that is, your brain age, and it may not jibe with your chronological one.
2: Researchers at Imperial College London have a method to analyze brain tissue to determine the age of its owner in order to calculate your real age and get ready the amount of time you have left to shuffle around this mortal coil. Yes, under this scenario, your gray cells are a clock indicating how long you have left to live.
1: Using an MRI machine, that is functional magnetic resonance imaging, James Cole and his colleagues looked at thousands of brain scans and compared them to studies of hundreds of elderly patients. The conclusion, your brain age is a pretty accurate metric for estimating lifespan.
2: Okay, James, before we get any deeper into this, Convince me that I want to hear it. I mean, I'm already unsettled by looking in the mirror and confronting my age, but now I have to look at my brain tissue too. Why would anyone want to do that?
4: Well, I think it can be useful because it potentially tells you that you're at increased risk of general unhealthy aging. And hopefully, to do that early can be an early warning sign that you might be an opportunity to intervene change your lifestyle, live more healthily.
2: All right, age more healthfully. Well, let's consider the experiment you did here, James. Uh, You compared the MRI scans of the Mm -hmm. brains of a couple of thousand healthy young people, I believe, and compared them with scans of adults who were 73 at the time of the scan, so they weren't so young anymore. Do I have that comparison correct?
4: Well, so actually the healthy group was aged from 18 all the way up to 90. So there was a, it was a wide age range in that group. But you're right, the, the group that we did compare them with were all aged approximately 73 when they had their MRI.
2: So if they came in and, you know, hypothetically, you were wearing blinders, so you, you had no idea how old they were, but then somebody showed you their brain scan, you could say, well, if this is, you know, the average bloke off the street, then this looks like somebody who's 55 or something like that. Uh, But what is it you're looking at? I mean, what in the brain is it that you, you know, determine their age from?
4: So we determine the age from their brain volume. So the MRI scans that we take are very high-detailed, high-resolution scans that allow you to look at different tissue that's within the brain, so gray matter and white matter principally. And basically we know already from other studies that the brain changes as we get older. So we did some analysis on these images to make what we call a three-dimensional volume map, and it's that information that allows us to predict how old somebody is.
2: Now, you mentioned gray matter and white matter. Everybody presumably knows that gray matter is, I guess, I always think of it, that's what's in my brain, but white matter, I mean, what's the difference between gray and white matter? What, What do they do that's different? Why do I have two different colors?
4: Well, good question. So the colours actually come from what they look like if you slice up someone's brain once it's uh, been extracted from their head. But actually they are the same cell. So a neuron, which is the cells that do most of your kind of thinking, they have a cell body and then a very, very long, thin tail, which is called an axon. The tail is covered in myelin, which is a kind of insulating sheath. And that improves how electricity that is sent by the cell body is conducted down the axon to connect to another neuron. So your gray matter is a collection of neurons all close together, and your white matter is a collection of these tails, these axonal fibers that connect up different parts of the brain.
2: All right. So your brain is losing volume. In other words, it's just getting smaller, if you will, as you age you have computer algorithms to do this analysis and that sounds pretty sophisticated but is the job of the computer algorithms simply to you know measure if you will the volume of your brain or does it do anything more i mean
4: so we have two classes of algorithm if you want one is to measure the volume and to create these three-dimensional volume maps that i was talking about earlier and then the other algorithms are to actually do this statistical prediction of age using the brain volume data as the kind of input.
2: Okay, so what comes out of the algorithm then is a number of what age you should be your brain is if it's like average brains. In other words, if your brain comes out with volume X and X is the volume of the average 55-year-old's brain, then your brain age is 55 and then they can compare that with what it says on your driver's license and decide whether your, <laughs> your brain is older than the rest of you. Pretty much,
4: yeah. That's that's basically how it works, yes.
2: Okay. And if it is older than the rest of you, that might not be such good news,
4: right? Exactly. That's the idea that we were putting forward. So the data from the study that we conducted shows that the magnitude, so how much older your brain appears to be than your chronological age, was related to other measures of kind of fitness in aging. And this includes Grip strength, um, lung function and walking speed, which are all very commonly used kind of clinical ways of measuring how healthy someone is as they get older. Um, It also related to cognitive performance and it seemed that people whose brains appeared older were cognitively performing at a lower level. And what was particularly interesting about this study was that we had data that went to seven or eight years after their MRI scan And we were able to see that 10% of the 600 or so people in the study had died and that the magnitude of how much older they were related to when they died.
2: And so the magnitude of how much older their brains were when they were scanned compared to other people their age, you're saying that's related to when they died. Okay, so... (laughs) This is somewhat lugubrious, but what it it seems to suggest is that if uh, you're already, you know, into retirement and you go in, you have your brain scan, they might say, well, you know, don't know if we should tell you this, but on average, you have three more years left or five more years. I mean, could you do that? And if so, with what kind of accuracy?
4: Crucially, I would say at the moment, we can't do that at an individual level. You know, the technique works when we take large numbers of people and we can average across big groups you know, because it is still quite an inaccurate technique for making predictions for any given individual. So I certainly wouldn't say to anybody, now's the time to go and see how many years you've got left. But we're hoping this is a first step towards a kind of screening tool that uses MRI data to understand how healthy people's brains are
2: all right but uh, you, you know this is still at the research stage i can imagine that you know 10 years from now that uh, this might become a routine measurement particularly if you have technology that allows you to make these scans in the privacy of your own home or something like that but it's not clear to me that anybody would want to know that i mean would they do you think
4: i don't know i mean i know that in the uk if you go to your gp and you have a health checkup you can answer questionnaires there that talk about how much you smoke or how much you eat and drink and things like that. And the doctor will give you an estimated lung age or heart age. And that's just on the basis of, you know, answering some questions about your behavior. So this is really a kind of more sophisticated equivalent that's obviously based on the brain. And I think actually telling somebody that an organ of your body, which is quite important to you, appears less healthy or older Than it should do for your age can actually bring home to people right i should live more healthily you know but also i'm hoping that we might be able to use this to understand what influences our brains to kind of age in an unhealthy way so smoking and drinking and things like that is you know we haven't really drilled down into that and we don't know the details so it may be that there are some things that are worse for your brain than others and if we could use measures like the one that we've developed to determine this then that could help inform us exactly what a healthy lifestyle should be for healthy brain aging.
2: Well, finally, James, Uh, you're a postdoc, so, you know, you're young. (laughs) Your brain is probably (laughs) as big as it's ever going to get. Does it kind of depress you to come in every day and know that, uh, you know, your gray matter is uh, sort of shriveling up there every day?
4: Uh, No. I'm quite philosophical about it. Maybe that will change as I get older, but I'm actually really lucky to work in an academic environment where I get to learn new stuff all the time, and actually, even if my brain is shrinking, I still feel feel like I'm giving it a good workout most of the time, so I'm pretty happy.
2: (laughs) James Cole, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you.
1: James Cole is a postdoctoral researcher studying neuroanatomy at Imperial College London.
2: We don't necessarily need an MRI scan to know that aging has consequences. A glance in the mirror does that pretty effectively, thank you. But as for the causes of aging, we don't know what they are at the cellular level. There's obviously a relationship between time and aging. But like the definition of time, that of aging
1: is not straightforward. But there is evidence that aging is plastic, a process that we can manipulate. Many research groups around the world, like that at Imperial College London, are trying to crack that aging code.
2: There's one initiative that's providing monetary incentive to do so. Jun Yoon is a radiologist who heads a California venture fund, Palo Alto Investors. His Palo Alto Longevity Prize is offering a total of a million dollars to the researcher or group that can figure out how to turn back time, or at least keep it from marching on.
1: Half a million will be awarded to the group that can prevent the unraveling of the homeostatic capacity, that is, restoring the body's resilience to stress. Another half million to the group that can extend the expected lifespan of a mammal by 50%. The Palo Alto Longevity Prize was announced in 2014, and it is yet unclaimed.
5: You know, so much of my career has been dedicated to helping people achieve health, both as a practitioner and as an investor. But the path we're on is a pretty risky path because when it comes to aging, all of our solutions address the symptoms of aging and not the cause. All right, well
2: now you've set up this prize. I believe it's, what, the $1 million Palo Alto longevity prize. Have I got that right? You do. Okay, and what do you have to do
5: to win this prize? Well, the initial prize is targeting the extension of lifespan by 50%, but that's just purely a longevity prize. The second prize, uh, which is under development, is the Healthspan prize, and we have a series of prizes that are coming after that as well. Uh, But this is an inducement prize. It's a way to get the field, both scientists and entrepreneurs, to focus on this as a specific target. In the current system, there's really no way to run a longevity clinical trial through the FDA because the endpoints obviously take too long. And then from an academic science perspective, uh, there's very little interest in the field as it relates to the biology of aging, and most of the money and research is spent towards treating the symptoms of aging.
2: Okay, uh, I think everybody knows what is meant by aging, and they certainly feel it at a certain point in their lives, but how do you define aging? I mean, if you're going to give a prize to stop it, you probably need to know what it is. Right. We're defining aging as the loss of homeostatic capacity.
5: Now, the easier way to visualize that, do you remember the toy from the 1970s called the Weeble Wobble?
2: Well, I don't, but maybe I was past toys at that point.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, Weeble Wobble is an egg-shaped toy where you push it, and then it self-centers. So think about that as what nature gave us. That's what our healthcare system really is. Our Weeble Wobble works. So most stresses that our body encounters, our body can self-center we can get back to homeostasis, which is a word. In other
2: words, if you get the measles or something like that, you just cure yourself. Exactly. Your
5: body returns to a balanced state on its own because it's got incredible resilience. Now once we hit 40, our weeble wobble doesn't function in the same way anymore, so now when our body undergoes stress, it doesn't return to the balanced neutral position anymore. And I can tell you kind of descriptively what that feels like. I turned 40 and all of a sudden I couldn't ride roller coasters. I mean, I remember being able to ride roller coasters when I was 14 and I come out of it, you're doing a somersault on this ride and your blood pressure recalibrates and you come out of it completely back in tune. Whereas now I come out of it wobbly, so I get nauseous and I tell my kids, I don't want to ride it anymore. Yeah. Same thing with temperature. You know, my kids uh, are in t-shirts when it's 50 and I'm in two layers and I tell them it's cold and they say that it's not cold, and neither one of us are lying. I've just lost my weeble, my ability to self center my temperature. The causes of death when we are young, like in our 20s, uh, it's all slings and arrows of life. It's externalities such as car accidents, gunshot wounds, suicide, infections. Whereas after 40, the causes of death dramatically change. We still have those same causes of death in the background, but all of a sudden we start dying of intrinsic causes that are losses of homeostasis, diabetes, hypertension, uh, stroke, heart attacks. And that's why by 120, the mortality rate is essentially 100%. So if we can actually solve aging, we can live now in a sustained health for a
2: long period of time. That's the idea. And, and that is caused by, well, do we even know what that's caused by? I mean, you know, why is it that nature is, kind of gives up on you at, at 40 and says, well, from now on, you're on your own, you and your doctor- Well, that's the most provocative
5: question. You know, when I was in college, one of the coolest ideas I encountered was this idea called Weissman's hypothesis, which is that nature programmed in us aging as a way to get out of the way of the better versions of ourselves, namely our children. Now, that idea was around in biology for decades until the idea was killed in 1953 by a Nobel laureate named Peter Medawar. So since the 50s, if you mentioned that aging might be a program, that's a natural program, people would just cite Matterwater's argument saying that can't be. Well, I think the idea has now returned over the last few years, the fact that aging might actually be codified, that aging might actually be a program, because we're seeing scientific evidence that aging has a plasticity to it, that you can actually affect it and modify it. If, in fact, aging is codified and it's genetic, we have a chance to edit those genes out, in which case that's the shortest possible path to doing something dramatic in aging, but if we assume it's not codified, then we're going to stay on the current path and keep doing whack-a-mole solutions for aging, which I think is going to be a very difficult path.
2: By which you mean you get an affliction of some sort, and we have a regimen to treat that, and so okay, now that's fixed, but now you get something else. That, that's what you mean by that's exactly Wh- right. Whack-a-mole's whack-a-mole is another whack-a-mole. game,
5: right? We just, we just we're just trying to put out the fires as we get older. If you think about what we measure today in your
2: annual checkup, what do they measure? Seth, in yeah. uh, your annual checkup. Well, I and blood pressure, you know, they listen to your lungs, that kind of stuff. So your, your oxygenation levels, your, I don't know, that kind of stuff.
5: Exactly. So those are
2: examples of state variables,
5: which means they all are recording a point in time of your body's function, heart rate, blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol. Well, measuring your body through these state variables is like an earthquake scientist assessing building collapse risk based on whether they're still standing once a year. In fact, what every other field of science does, they do what's called resilience testing. They test system dynamics instead of system state. And we are the only field, biology and healthcare, is the only field that still treats our body as a static system instead of as a dynamic system. Remember, Minkowski taught us in 1908 that we should consider the fourth dimension to really understand science. And the fact that today in biology, we don't measure... Our biomarkers over time, because we don't measure resilience, we, we're missing so much information. We have no temporal resolution
2: in biology today. Everything is static. So, do you think that the answer to this homeostasis problem is in rewiring our DNA? For example, I mean, so that we don't do this. I, th- I think that almost every species, I would say, every species. Ages, except that that's not apparently true. There's some microscopic organisms, hydra, you know, these little things that you probably looked at in middle school under a microscope that look like miniature octopuses or something uh, that don't age. But in general, everything ages. Is the answer to rewire our genome?
5: Exactly. E- aging is not a thermodynamic necessity, meaning we're not a closed system. We can always acquire energy to fight entropy, so we can actually accumulate extropy as a result. So there's no reason why we have to age, but the fact that aging is everywhere is why we assume that it's inevitable, even though, as you mentioned, there's some species uh, that seem to not have aging. If you look at the science in the 1960s, there was an idea that cells are programmed to age. It was a heretical idea, and then it won the Nobel Prize. There's a precedence for thinking this way. In fact, if you look at the genes that encode for cellular aging and cell suicide called apoptosis, Those genes appear to have been a relatively recent innovation in the context of evolutionary history. In other words, it looks like the earliest organisms didn't have these programmed aging genes, and it was a late invention after we start to live in society of cells, and maybe it was advantageous to delete the aging members as a way to make room for the new new cells, the better versions. So the time is now to reinvent everything, including the way we think about biology and health. And I think that's why I am encouraged that there's a chance that we could actually hack this agent code.
2: Are, are there already competitors for your prize? I mean, uh, have people applied to uh, cash in the check?
5: Yes, there are teams that are endeavoring on the first prize. First prize is a mouse longevity. It's intentional. It's, it's a way to get the field started. And we set the bar low enough that there's a decent chance somebody's gonna win. And we're now uh, recruiting teams for the second prize. The real interesting projects are coming downstream, and you'll hear about them more in the coming months and years. Jun
2: Yoon, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Seth, thank you for having me.
1: Jun Yoon is a radiologist who heads a California venture fund, Palo Alto Investors. He is the creator and sponsor of the Palo Alto Longevity Prize. Well, while no one has yet fulfilled the requirements of that prize, scientists have made other breakthroughs into controlling aging. One group claims to have reversed the biological clock in mice.
2: And what if you're not a mouse? Well, find out when human trials begin next.
1: It's time on your side
2: on Big Picture Science.
3: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The aging process is like the relentless advance of a clock. Aging is a steady accumulation of biological changes, usually not favorable, over time. But while our cells lose efficiency, here's a remarkable thing. The biological clock is always set back to zero at conception. No matter how old parents are at the time an egg is fertilized, the zygote shows no markers of age.
1: So is there a way to reset the adult biological clock? Well, the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California claims yes. They say they've gotten time to reverse course by reprogramming previously discovered cells and genes called Yamanaka factors. These eponymous genes were discovered by a Japanese scientist who found that they were key to coaxing adult cells to revert to their stem cell state. The pluripotent stem cells can then develop into any cell in the body.
2: When Salk Institute researchers exposed mice to some of these Yamanaka factors in regular doses, the animals not only looked younger, but lived 30% longer. Well, what I want to know is when do human trials begin? So let's not waste any time and meet these genes. Pradeep Reddy is a research scientist at the Salk
6: Institute. As the time passes, the cell accumulates all these hallmarks of aging. So all these together in the end will lead to a functional loss of uh, cell property. So the cell cannot do its job very well. Yeah. The,
2: the, the macro effect, the, the effect on the whole organism is pretty obvious, I have to say. But yes. to, to, to reprogram this clock, what's the idea here? Is the idea to stop further aging? Or, or can you actually reverse aging and you know, kind of a fountain of youth?
6: We can slow down aging. So what we did, at least in our recent study, what we saw is we were uh, able to slow down the aging in a mouse model, and if we take an a little old mice, we were able to restore the regenerative capacity of certain organs. So, completely reversal of aging, I wouldn't say yes yet, but maybe it's possible in the future. But at this moment, we can at least restore the function of certain organs. Well, let's look more closely at the experiments you were
2: doing. And uh, to state this again, you were doing them with mice. Uh, You were working with some genes called the Yamanaka genes. That and, and somehow are able to reset their biological clock. So, uh, what what did you do? You re-engineered the mice in some way, but how did you prompt those genes to, you know, become the right kind of tissue or reset adult tissue or repair adult tissue? I mean, tell, tell me how it works.
6: Okay. So, Yamanaka genes are four reprogramming factors, what we call them. These are the factors that are normally expressed in stem cells. So, If you take a stem cell, you can see the expression of these genes. But if you take a differentiated cell, like a skin cell, you will not see an expression of these genes because it's not required at that moment because it's a completely differentiated cells. Now, what we learned during the last few years is during the process of this reprogramming where you can use these Yamanaka genes, you can convert a skin fibroblast all the way to a stem cell. And then when you turn the back the stem cells into a skin cell, it looks much younger. So you basically, you can take a 90-year-old skin cell, turn them into an iPS cell, stem cells, and differentiate them back into a skin. It looks much younger instead. So that kind of gives us an indication that, okay, you can use these factors to kind of go all the way to stem cells and back to the skin cells, and you can get a more younger state of a cell. But You cannot do this in a mouse because if you constitutively express these Yamanaka genes, you will end up forming uh, teratomas that will lead to cancer formation because you are converting the cell completely to a stem cell. So to avoid that, we express these Yamanaka genes for a very short period of time.
2: Well, let me see if I understand what you're saying here. You have a scheme that turns these uh, old... I don't know, somatic cells, a a skin cell. And you kind of put it in reverse and turn it back, not all the way to a stem cell, which after all can become anything, right? Uh, Because if you do that, it may become a cancer cell. But you you take it part way back and then let it become a skin cell again. And now it's a, you know, it's a factory fresh
6: skin cell. Yeah. You don't convert the cell to any other cell. You maintain it as skin cell, but at the same time, you kind of reverse some of these aging hallmarks. We were able to get all the beneficial effects.
2: Well, tell me what those were. I mean, if I was one of the mice in your experiments, I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure that's my life
6: goal. But you know, if
2: if, if I were one of these uh, rodents, uh, you know, yes. how would I come out of this compared to how I went into it?
6: <laughs> so, now. Normally the mice has a lifespan of around three years, but those kind of experiments takes very long to know the phenotype. So we use this mouse model where its lifespan is only uh, 16 to 18 weeks. Now, when we express these Yamanaka factors in these mice, first thing what we saw is their lifespan was extended by almost 30%. To see what kind of things that help them to survive long when we check all the different tissues like stomach, skin and uh, spleen we, we could see that the tissues look much better in shape compared to uh, mice that didn't receive this uh, Yamanaka factor induction so basically the expression of these factors were able to maintain your uh, skin as young so it just prevents the aging to happen. So, well, how would you gauge the importance of this development? I mean,
2: it, it sounds incredibly important. Some researchers apparently have uh, called it huge. But of yes. course, the experiments are in mice, and as we know, there are a lot of diseases we can cure in mice, but you know, the cures don't seem to work for humans. Is, is this going to work for humans?
6: Uh, It will certainly because, I mean, based on what we know so far is like whatever we learned in the lower organisms all the way up to humans, the mechanism is kind of very conserved. So whatever things we find in humans should more or less work the same way. But we cannot do any genetic engineering in humans. So the alternative is to find uh, small molecules or chemicals that could give us the same beneficial effects when you use the reprogramming factors. So in the future, when we find some chemicals, you could take them as a pill, probably maybe once or twice a week, which could kind of give you all the same benefit effects, more or less, what we see in the mice. So that is what we expect, at least down the road, maybe in five to 10 years.
2: Five to 10 years? There's hope. Yes. Well, well, that, that's incredible. I hope you have a patent on all this. Uh, that's But, <laughs> what, what, uh, Pradeep, what would this mean for humanity? I mean, uh, you know, some people could afford this right away. They could live longer, healthier lives. And, uh, of course, if everybody lives 30% longer, you know, you're not going to get that, that next job uh, at the university <laughs> because the professor is going to be, the tenured professor is <laughs> going to be in there for an extra 20 or 30 years. But, uh, I mean, I would think that... There would be a huge rush
6: for this. Uh, Yes, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion on this line. So there's like people argue from both the sides. It could kind of disturb the social economic balance. But I think at least uh, what we are aiming at this moment is not like to extend the lifespan, but more to extend the health span. So like if you take when you are maybe 70 or 80 years old, you are unable to move a lot you cannot do many things by yourself so you're more relying on other people but what if we can get to a stage that you are able to do all the things by yourself so basically you can take care all by yourself, not relying on anybody. So that's more like you are increasing the health of an individual.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds like bad news for these caretaker robots coming down, <laughs> coming down the pike. But uh, are you aware of uh, this prize offered in Palo Alto, actually? Palo Alto, yes. Yes, for anyone who can extend the uh, lifespan of a mammal by fifty percent. And yes. uh, it sounds like you're well in the running here.
6: Yes, so the study we did in or very recently was done using a mouse model, like I mentioned. So the Palo Alto longevity price is actually, you need to demonstrate the same thing in a wild type mice. So you cannot use any genetically engineered mouse model to demonstrate. So you should take a wild type mice that can only survive for two and a half to three years and you need to extend the lifespan in that mice. So only then you will build that price. I take it you've
2: resisted uh, the temptation <laughs> to uh, experiment on yourself like uh, Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pradeep Reddy, thank you so very much for speaking with us. No, thank you very much for your interest.
1: Pradeep Reddy is a biotechnologist at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. So what we've been hearing in the show are some variations on the themes of time and aging, both which we thought at one time, time as it were, were fixed or moving just in one direction, and, and that's being challenged. Well,
2: indeed. I mean, for Isaac Newton, time was some absolute. Somewhere in the universe there were just uh, clocks that were, you know, going forward, and that was all there was to it. Well, we all know we have internal clocks. You know, when you when you wake up, how long it seems to brush your teeth compared to how long it takes you to do something interesting or watch a movie, that kind of thing. But the most interesting part, I think, of this show is is indeed the fact that we might be able to reverse aging, that we might be able to stop aging. That That's, in a sense, a real-time machine. Also, this idea about how quickly your brain shrinks. Well, that's depressing all around, isn't it? After age 20, your gray matter begins to shrink. I think uh, my gray matter is about the size of a walnut rattling around in my skull. I hope it doesn't get any smaller. Maybe a wasabi pea.
1: Thanks to the brains who efficiently use time when they help us make a new show from scratch every week. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and Operations Manager Barbara Vance.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Scholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bowes Junior Foundation. Big picture science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including understanding the icy moons and planets of the solar system. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to the big picture science episode time on your side if you'd like to hear more big picture science episodes well you'll find them in our archive that's in the past at bigpicturescience.org
2: if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because radio broadcasting after all takes you back to an earlier age check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show.
1: And if you listen to our show via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review today on our iTunes page. We'll look at it in the future.
2: And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise, email it all to BigPictureScience at SETI.org.
0: And here in this terrarium, we agree, is a mole rat. I am digging, still digging. There is no yesterday
1: or tomorrow, only now and digging.